Please be seated. This is the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, and the Green Sundays, as I have mentioned and have in the bulletin each week now, uh, Vicki Black, the deacon from Iowa, in her book, Welcome to the Church Year, says that the Green Sundays are about our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus Christ and with one another through our prayers, the sacraments and the life in the body of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the church and its mission. And I mention this because all three readings today have something to do with all of those things, and so I'm going to preach on them. The two main themes that occurred to me reading uh, the lessons this week was uh, how important are mentors in our lives? How important uh, is the, are the people that have had some influence on us uh, over time? And how do we understand that influence, particularly with regard to perhaps um, the responsibility someday or already to have mentored somebody uh, as they're moving forward in their life? And what about the idea of past as prologue? which to some degree is approached by Jesus in the gospel today. And then finally, what is the freedom that we seek in Christ and that Paul speaks about today in Galatians? And how do we understand what he means when he speaks about the relationship between the flesh and the spirit and what that might mean uh, in a way that would be more useful than uh, it's been preached about in the past, for sure. We're at Second Kings today, and we have the transfer of uh, the spirit of Elijah to his follower or his sidekick, or however you wish to characterize it, Elisha. And Elisha has said to Elijah, when Elijah asked him, what is it that you'd like for me? Because I'm now about to go to God. And he says, I would like a double portion of your spirit. And the presumption is that somehow along the way, Elisha has learned some things from Elijah that he wants to keep and that he wants to understand as, as aspects of his own vocation as he moves forward. And when I read this, I got to thinking about my own life and about uh, the importance of mentors in my life. <clears throat> Sometimes the advice of mentors is not always the best. And other times it just is the right thing. I remember uh, a number of years ago now when I was the rector of Christ Church Sausalito, uh, I was a priest that uh, I knew very well. He'd retired and lived in Mill Valley. And I used to go see him and talk to him about my ministry. And he helped me a lot. And you know what I learned from him was that every person can develop practical wisdom about what it is they do and how they understand things that can help somebody else and give them the ability to meet the challenges and the opportunities 
that are in front of them. And uh, he taught me many things about that. That's just one example of uh, the importance of mentors. And so I think for the Elijah-Elisha cycle, uh, thinking about their importance is an important thing. A double portion of Elijah's spirit. It's interesting, when I was in seminary, uh, I got a scholarship to study in Rome for about a month and a half. Uh, and I went over there with 20 other seminarians. And we were taken down into the diggings under the papal altar at St. Peter's Basilica. And, you know, there's a place, those of you who've been there, where, the, where your tourists can go beneath there, and there's some other things. But we went way down uh, below, underneath where you had to, you, you had to have a, know the password, I guess. And we were, we were guided by a French Monsignor who had been, a, a, I guess, a war hero in France. He was an older man, and he had the Croix de Guerre rosette on his lapel, on his jacket. I, I remember that. Other than that, he looked like, Central Casting, send me a French Monsignor. <laughs> so you'd ask him a question, and we had... You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Gestures, you know. But it was very interesting, and the reason I mention this is that we had to get down on our knees at one point and look up into kind of a grotto that they had unearthed and, uh, there, and there was this mosaic that um, was dates from about 125, and it was a picture of Jesus ascending into heaven in a chariot like Elijah. And I thought, well, you know, in early Christian art, there were lots of different ways to depict uh, the ascending Christ, right? And this was one of them. So Elijah, Elisha had a powerful impress on the early Christian church. And maybe not just from the standpoint of the continuity of the history of salvation is it there, but also for reading and meditating on God's word, we learn something about uh, mentors and how important they are in our lives and why that is. Sometimes, you know, mentoring can even happen when someone says one thing to you and you never forget it. And it has helped you uh, along the way. I had a parishioner at Christ Church Sausalito who at one time was the youngest city manager in the United States. He managed Katati when he was 28 years old. And by the time I knew him, he was working for Governor Jerry Brown in Governor Jerry Brown's first go-round with Governor of California. And he worked for him up in Sacramento. And he said to me when we were involved in some community work in Sausalito that we'd become very active in, he said to me one day when I was all like this, he said, David, don't prejudge the process. Don't prejudge the process. And it was some of the best advice I've ever had. It is one of my great uh, character defects to get up and try to think I can manipulate the process in order to have the outcome that I think is the best one to have. And you know, sometimes you've got to let the processes work to come to some uh, solution that is the best.
and it was a piece of wisdom that I have never forgotten, and I'm very grateful to him for that. In Luke's Gospel, we have Jesus. This is another reading from the Bible that gives my teacher, O.C. Edwards, uh, the truth of what he said. It isn't important what the Bible says. It's important what the Bible means. And, you know, we all sit in church or stand there and listen to uh, me reading to you about the disciples and Jesus go on some journey and they're in a village that's a Samaritan village and they weren't received because Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem. And then two guys, James and John, are mad and they say, let's call fire down on this village. And Jesus rebukes him. Well, why would they want to do that anyway? And what in the world does it mean? It's just sort of a line in the story, right? Well, the Samaritans were a group that didn't get taken away in the Babylonian exile 700 years before. They had their own communities and their own sacred literature and their own religious practices and their own sacred site, Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem. And so here are some Jews coming into their village and they're not having any of it. Because Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem. So, well, they're saying, well, that's the end of that. Right? It's a little sub thing there. And it may have something to do also about Luke, a Gentile, who was saying that this message is for everybody. And that's why Jesus rebuked James and John for saying, let's uh, have God, you know, wreak havoc in this village. But more to my point, we are talking today about the issue of past as prologue, or what are the connections to our past that we need now to preserve moving forward, if any. And I've mentioned this to you before because there are problems with understanding past as prologue. You know, if you understand what I mean. The past informs who you are, what you're like now, and is determinative of how you're going to behave and how you're going to think. And we've been sold that bill of goods in this country for a long time now. We live in the therapeutic culture. And the problem, as I've said to you many times, is the same cause has paradoxical effects. So the problem with understanding past as prologue is a child raised in a scrupulously neat family will either become a neatnik or a slob or something in between. And maybe something in today's gospel has uh, to do with the whole issue of attachment. You know, we even get used to the things that drag us down. So there's some extreme examples here. There's a guy who says to Jesus, I'll follow you, but I got to go bury my father. And he said, let the dead bury their own dead. Can you imagine saying that to somebody in the ancient Near East? It would have been shocking or unfeeling. 
right? Everybody would have said, oh, how could he say such a thing? And it's said because it has something to do with attachment and moving forward. Somebody else says, I want to go say goodbye to my family. He said, you go and do this. You know, Moses spent a lot of time with the people of Israel in the wilderness turning their focus away from the place of remembered good times or remembered bad times, for that matter, to a place where they were going to receive a new focus, a new vision, a new self-definition, and a deeper and fuller understanding of God's will and purpose for them. And it's often hard for us to turn our gaze away from the past. I had somebody say to me about a month or six weeks ago, it's okay to look at your past, but don't stare at it. (laughs) You know, we allow that too much, and maybe uh, Jesus was getting at something like that when these extreme examples are placed in front of us. You see a lot of that hyperbolic kind of commentary by the Savior uh, in the Gospels. So it's a a reminder to us uh, about looking forward and uh, understanding that um, the same cause has paradoxical effects. In the reading from Galatians today, Paul, you know, the situation on the ground. Paul founds these churches in Galatia. It's in Asia Minor, in the northern part of Galatia. He goes away. People uh, communicate to him that in his absence, some people, Christian people, have come into Galatia and they have said, you have had or been evangelized by uh, the Apostle Paul. First of all, we need to say to you that Paul is kind of a second-rate apostle. He's not an eyewitness. And secondly, he's told you, Gentiles, that you don't have to keep the Jewish law to be a Christian. We're telling you that he is mistaken. And you must keep the Jewish law. And that means that all the men have to be circumcised And it means that you need to keep the Jewish dietary laws. And it means you need to keep the Sabbath. And Paul is over the moon about this. And he writes this defense in Galatians. And a lot of famous theological stuff uh, is in Galatians. But today... He's dealing with an issue that seems to flow from his own insistence that it is belief in Christ, being in Christ, participation in Christ that saves both Jew and Gentile. And that some people not only have confused the issue of keeping the Jewish law with that reality, They have believed that if Paul has said the law is unimportant, then we can absolutely do what we want. As long as we've been saved, it's kick out the jams. We'll just do what we want to do. This occurs in other places in the New Testament. And he's saying that Christian freedom is not 
freedom from, it is freedom to. Now, why this is important is this. Paul gets a list. He reads us a list uh, or writes a list. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this. Do you think that he would uh, communicate this list to these people if none of this was going on there? And where did he get it from in the first place? This isn't a Christian list of immoral behavior. He gets this list from Greek Stoic philosophy. Why is that important? Because what Paul is saying is that ordinary human beings, you Gentiles who have been influenced by Greek culture, you know the right way to behave. You know these things are wrong. This isn't something that I've cooked up just to tell you that uh, you've got to now walk the straight and narrow. That the best and the highest of human practical wisdom has said that this behavior can become a dead end. When Paul speaks about the works of the flesh, he's not speaking just about our bodies. He's speaking about the whole of the human person turned away from God and in on themselves. So our emotional, spiritual, and mental states are part of the flesh understood in this way. And the spirit is the whole of the human person, body, soul, mind, spirit, given to God in love. So Paul provides us in the New Testament with a checklist that I use all the time in my sermons about how we would know if we were making any spiritual progress. If you say, have I, have I decided I want to do this, make any spiritual progress? He says, the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And these things, uh, there's no law against doing, you know? So I've always figured that if you're able to do these things a little bit better than you were yesterday, or even you do them today and then the next day you fall back and then you do, that maybe that's the way the spiritual progress works in the human person. And Paul is speaking now about that being the work of the spirit and not the work of the flesh, even though we live those things in relationship in our bodies and in our emotional, uh, spiritual, and mental states in which we find ourselves on a daily basis. Paul urges this on the Galatian community. I suspect we were having parish life 48 AD here, right? So a lot of this stuff was, was going on within the community. Factionalism, licentiousness, all of the things probably some bad behavior on people's part in one form or another. And he's saying, you know, you're not freed from your obligation to restrain yourself from these things. Uh, Mary Morrison, a number of years ago, gave me an old book. C.S. Lewis one time said, 
when you read a new book, you should then read an old book. I have a great failing, and that is I'm interested in what, all of the stuff about what it is that I do as a, as a member of the clergy, but I have this great fault of looking at a book and then looking at the page to see when it was published. You know? And I realize that I missed out on a lot of stuff that's really good because I think, oh no, that can't be contemporary. That's not up to date. This was a series of essays by some prominent Episcopalians in the 1930s. And there was an article there about salvation. And it was written by a famous guy named Frank M. Gavin. And he said at one point, you know, for a thousand years or more, the Christian church has preached salvation in an almost entirely negative fashion. We are told that we have been saved from sin, sickness, and death, saved from ourselves, saved from our reprobate character, rather than what the ancient Christian church says, that you are saved to newness of life, the possibility of transformation and growth, the possibility now that you can see in a deeper and fuller way God's will and purpose for you, that you have some glimpse into what it means to be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love, that this is the affirmative result of your being in Christ that Paul speaks about today in Galatians. And so this lesson is an opportunity to remind ourselves that maybe we need to be a little bit more affirmative about the nature of God's saving work in the lives of faithful people, indeed in anybody's life, who is seeking to know more deeply and more fully God's purposes for them. So this week, give thanks for all the mentors. Uh, try not to prejudge any processes that you find yourself in at the, in, in the middle of, of, of things. Uh, give thanks for those mentors. Understand that uh, you are free now to serve God in whatever appropriate way you think it might redound to in future. Give thanks for the opportunity to uh, shed those aspects of your past uh, that don't help, and to let them go. Amen.